Well, good evening. My name is uh, Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And uh, it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce our two speakers. Um, our principal speaker is David Graeber. <laughs> and uh, David studied at, uh, at the State University of New York at uh, Chicago and has taught at Yale and at Goldsmiths College and is soon to be um, a colleague of ours here at the London School of Economics. He's the author of a, a number of books. Uh, he's, he's written uh, important books in the area of social anthropology, uh, which is the department he's been based in. Um, and he's also written books um, that have a more activist orientation, including Ethnographies of Direct Action, a book which was widely discussed and widely read on debt, the first 5,000 years, and the book that we're going to be discussing tonight, The Democracy Project, which is out this week. Um, in addition to um, being a scholar, he's a prominent activist, and I think in that sense it's in the spirit of our series this year in the Ralph Miliband program. And he's notable in particular, I think, for his role in the Occupy movement, which he seeks to document and analyse in this book. And he's also notable because he identifies with a broadly anarchist tradition, a tradition uh, whose influence over social movement activities is, I think, both um, overstated and understated overstated because of the emphasis on small numbers of um, black bloc and related groups that tend to hijack um, protests uh, without much concern for democratic norms, and understated because of a failure to acknowledge the deep wellsprings of thought in that tradition uh, which have influenced social protest in countries like ours. So that's our principal speaker. We also have with us uh, Professor Craig Calhoun, who is, of course, the director of the London School of Economics. And uh, Craig, as many of you all know, is a public intellectual and historically-oriented social scientist with an enduring interest in questions of radicalism and social protest. And his own recent publication, The Roots of Radicalism, draws together something of three decades of thought about social movements and social protests. So it's hard, I think, to imagine a better discussant to have for tonight's, um, uh, tonight's discussion. We're going to proceed like this. Um, Professor Calhoun is going to pose questions uh, to David, and he's then going to respond. And we're going to do that um, for about 50, 55 minutes, and then after that we're going to open it up to you all to ask questions and have discussion from floor. So before I, I turn to Professor Calhoun, can I just ask you to join me in welcoming both of our guests here to the London School of Economics. Well, so David and I have, have concluded, among other things, that we can't see anyone sitting over there if we sit down, so we're standing up. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? And then you'll probably be able to hear David. If not, we will use microphones more. Our thought tonight was that it would be more fun to have a conversation. Uh, it'll be an asymmetrical conversation, which I get to ask questions. Although David can turn the tables, who knows? But he'll give longer speeches as answers. I'll give uh, shorter questions. But the idea is to explore some of the themes, particularly in the Democracy Project, the uh, new book that David's written, which 
is an account of the Occupy movement, particularly as he was directly in first person engaged in this. So one of the compelling things about the story is it's his story and Occupy's story interwoven in this, and it has that first person view of what's going on. But it's also a story about how change happens and the way democracy might work and what it might mean. And so I'm going to ask a few questions about that, including one to start with. The, a way in which David thinks about Occupy is as part of a world revolution, um, a world revolution that hasn't yet won, um, but a world revolution, you could compare it to historical revolutions like 1848 or other and ask. So there are things going on in various countries, as there were in 1848, when it was not just any one country, it's not just France, it's not just others. But lots of people's ideas of what a revolution must be involves storming the Bastille and um, the July days of 1848 where there are sort of pitched groups of workers allied in the streets and the barricades of Paris and so forth. There are hints of that. There are certainly barricades in the Occupy story. But David's story is one where revolution has a lot to do with changes in how we think, not just with these sorts of material confrontations and with overcoming hegemonies of thinking, in his view, ways in which we think about work, ways in which we think about debt, are important hegemonies of thinking, ways in which we're bound into existing thinking. So I thought it might be nice for him to talk about how he sees revolution hmm. and what he means by thinking that changes, saying our changes in how we think about debt and work could be part of a world revolution. Yeah, well... A lot of what I thought, when I framed things that way, I was really going back to ideas first uh, really put forth by Emmanuel Wallerstein, who's an old colleague of mine at Yale. Um, and he was originally inspired to come up with the idea that every real revolution is a world revolution um, and that it really consists above all of a change of political common sense by thinking about the French Revolution. He was replying to... Uh, a story, and he said, well, maybe the French Revolution didn't really make a lot of difference, because if you look at what France was like in 1750 and what France was like in 1850, and if you look at what Denmark was like in 1750 and 1850, you, know, um, you can't really say that, that France changed more. It might quite possibly Denmark changed more. Um, and Wallerstein's reply was, well, yes, but would Denmark have changed were it not for the French Revolution? Uh, and where he went from that is that, that, in effect, any revolution, even if it seems to be taking part, place in one country, is really a global affair under the conditions of world systems. Uh, and that, thus, 1848, there's no fundamental difference in what happened in 1848, where they didn't seize power anywhere, but nonetheless, pretty much every country in Europe um, came through a law of universal education afterwards. Um, and revolutions such as 1917 or uh, the French Revolution, where they seized power in one country, but the transformation was across the system. So Wallerstein, being an inveterate optimist, um, immediately decided in 2011 that he was witnessing the same thing, that, yep, world revolution, actually sent him an email saying, so is it world revolution of 2011? And he said, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and, and, you know, if you see what happened as a kind of a ricocheting series of events, um, clearly, you know, what happened in Tunisia and then Egypt 
uh, spreading across the Mediterranean, Greece and, and Spain in particular, being affected. Um, and then finally hitting New York, where it kind of had this brief supernova-like explosion all over the world. And it still continues to bounce around to this day. I mean, it doesn't get as much attention. But for example, I ran into someone from South Africa just a week ago who said that uh, an Al Jazeera video of a lot of us um, from Occupy Wall Street recently sort of made it down has been um, to township organizers in South Africa, and suddenly there's occupies all over South Africa in places we haven't even heard of. So, so the strategy keeps reappearing um, over and over again in different forms in different places, even though the media, um, to a certain degree, seems to have decided it's no longer news. Uh, so the question then is, well, and this is Wallerstein's other point, um, I should emphasize that um, what's really profound about a revolution is not, therefore, the seizure of power, lack of seizure of power uh, in any particular place, but the change in your basic assumptions about what politics is. In 1750, even in Paris, um, if you put forth the proposition that social change is good, most people would think that you're some sort of crazy idealistic radical. By 1850, pretty much even the most stodgy headmaster sort of person would have to pretend they agreed with that. Um, that's the kind of change that a revolution really brings about, the sort of basic parameters of political discussion. And he had a series of assumptions that he thought um, had come out of the French Revolution. One, that social change is good and normal and, and to be desired. Uh, two is that government is the appropriate medium for guiding the path of social change. Um, and three is that the legitimacy of a government comes from something, however defined, that we can refer to as the people. Um, all of which were basically the sort of thing that, that eccentric people debated in cafes a generation before, and the sort of thing everybody had to at least pretend they agreed with afterwards. Um, the question is, well, if we're in witnessing something of that scale, um, some kind of, or even a minor version of that scale, a, a, a transformation of assumptions about politics um, in the wake of the economic crash and then this sort of moment of, of, of effervescent world revolution, well, what would it be? Um, and it's the kind of thing you can't really know until at least 10 years later. But um, I had some thoughts, and, and one of the things I wanted to do in the book is to throw that out, um, that the two things that really came together um, in this movement that seemed very different than ones before had to do with the nature of debt and the nature of work. Uh, and that, that would be the place where it would come. Um, I'll give a very brief analysis of why I think this is the case. Um, in terms of debt, um, we found something really interesting. When we, ha we didn't really know who was going to show up when we started the occupations in, in New York and elsewhere. And um, we were rather surprised to discover that debt came out as a theme in almost everybody we talked to that we didn't know already. Um, the most typical person who came to one of the camps who were indebted college students or just ex-college students, people who were essentially, um, whose line was remarkably similar, sort of, I, I was one of the good kids, I played by the rules, did what I was told, I borrowed the money to go to college, studied hard, here I am, $40,000 in debt, no prospect of a job, but the guys who crashed the economy who didn't play by the rules at all, they got bailed out, and now I have to spend the rest of my life being basically told that I, I'm, I did something wrong, that I'm a deadbeat, because I'm in debt to them. Well, that's not fair. Um, what really surprised us, though, was that we got incredible solidarity from organized labor. Um, I mean, to the point where 
you know, the Transit Workers Union in New York is still in the process of suing the New York Police Department for appropriating their buses to arrest us all and on the Brooklyn Bridge action. Um, we had incredible support from labor, and, and this is historically unusual because this started to happen a little bit in 2000, but nothing like this. Um, in fact, I talked to people who were... Uh, at the last time there was a major direct action at Wall Street in, I think it was 72, they said unionized construction workers were physically attacking them with two-by-fours of the complicity of the police. Essentially, organized labor completely switched sides. Uh, and it seems to have to do with the fact that, you know, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, the plight of the indebted college student was something which would really not have moved the heart of the average train conductor in, in New York. But now, suddenly, people are in very similar structural situations because of the change of the basic structure of capitalism, essentially. Less and less profits are coming out of um, industry and commerce. Huge amounts are coming from the finance industry. What that essentially means is, is manipulated debt. Um, at this point, I was trying to get the figures, and they're very hard to find, but um, it seems like the average American household pays 20% of their income directly to the financial services industry in one form or another. Um, and um, it's extracted a lot more from some people than from others. Uh, and the working poor, after all the people with the subprime mortgages, um, Transit Workers Union, is, is, for example, is, is primarily an African-American union historically, and um, it was certainly there's an incredible amount of institutional racism involved in who ends up with of subprime mortgages. Um, people who can't get out of debt after 2008 when everybody was deleveraging were essentially the working poor um, and um, students because you can't, you know, even bankruptcy, you can't get rid of student loan debt. Um, they found themselves very much in the same boat. Uh, second of all, in terms of Labor, um, the other fascinating thing, we had this web page called uh, the We Are the 99% web page where we encourage people to just sort of stand there with little signs telling your life situation and story, and it always ended with I am the 99%. And there were incredibly poignant stories of, of people in desperate situations, but um, there were all the people who couldn't show up to the camps, you know, because they were actually working all the time or, um, or being unemployed, which is a full-time job in America. Uh, but... The, um, what fascinated me was like about 80% of the people of these signs were women, and even the men were almost always engaged in either caring labor of some kind or service labor or you know, doing something nice for people. Um, there's a basic paradox in America. The more that your work obviously benefits other people, the less they'll pay you. Um, and the people who, so the, the, this kind of cry that came, came out of this over and over again is, I want to be a nice person. I want to do a job that actually does, is good for others. Um, but if you want to have a job where you're obviously benefiting other people, you'll end up so deeply in debt you can't take care of your own family. Um, and I think it was that crisis of labor that really came out over and over again when, um, when, in terms of who came out in support of us. Um, so I thought, all right, um, there, there seems to be an obvious crisis in terms of both the prevalence of debt uh, and, and the political issue of debt, and which has become you know, a problem. So personal debt, uh, corporate debt, I mean, they're on every level, that everybody admits is, is, is pretty much insoluble. Um, but behind that, there's a crisis of the sort of labor that's going on that I think people are talking about very much less. And um, in fact, when you ta I talk to people um, who are in positions of power, I often find them admitting that um, 
No, you, the debt will have to be forgiven. There will have to be some sort of large debt cancellation program. Um, the question is the form that it's going to take, how to do it politically. Um, I think the real struggle right now is, is, is whether it's going to be used to simply reproduce the system um, or to transform it and how it's going to be dressed up, how honest they're going to be about the fact that they're doing it. Um, but the fascinating thing is that people still don't want to admit it because the morality of debt and the morality of work, the idea that you know, if you are not willing to submit yourself to um, some form of intensely disciplined labor, you're just not a good person, could never be a good person and deserve nothing, are the kind of two ideological strengths of the existing, pinning up the existing system. Um, the, the existing system doesn't have much else to say for it, to be perfectly honest. And you think about um, the traditional lines used to defend capitalism, um, you know, it might create inequality, but the poor at least are doing better and better. Well, people aren't saying that very much anymore. Um, the idea that it foments continual technological advance and change no longer seems to be the case. I, I would argue this is much a break on technological change as anything else at this point. Um, the argument that um, you know it creates at least democratic stability and greater democracy doesn't seem to be made very much anymore. Um, so the major arguments seem to be nothing else is possible and um, a, a moral appeal. And the, the morality of debt, the morality of work are the two sort of last defenses that people really seem to take seriously. People really ought to pay their debts. People who don't work are bad. Uh, and. Um, there is a huge social crisis brewing around this, which I think could well lead to a radical transformation, would have to, uh, of the way we think about both these things. So at the end of the book, I threw out, just to be perverse, um, one example of a revolutionary demand. Um, in a way, the crisis of work and the crisis of debt are the same, because what is debt but a promise of even greater future work or productivity in the future than you're doing now. Um, so I suggested, why not have a global jubilee followed by a four-hour day? You know, because in a sense, we're letting ourselves off the hook, right? We're no longer promising ourselves to increase production in this sort of breakneck pace, which is, after all, um, ecologically completely unsustainable. might be the only thing we could do to save the planet um, would be to combine the um, debt cancellation with a radical rethinking of, of the very idea of how much and what sort of work we should be doing. One of the recurring themes in David's book, or motifs really, not a theme, is David improvising. Right, it's, it's sort of, well, I wasn't going to speak, but then they kind of pushed me onto the stage. Well, I found out I had something to say, and it, you've seen it demonstrated here. But let me, let me push on a little of this, and a truth in advertising claim before we're here to sell David's book, but I'll tell you that Emmanuel Wallerstein and I have just written a book called oh. uh, with, uh, with Michael Mann, formerly of the LSC, others uh, called Does Capitalism Have a Future?, and so I want to come back to a Wallerstein connection, or really two of them successfully. Okay. The first one is that um, Wallerstein would, um, I think, enthusiastically agree. Wallerstein's written about the World Revolution of 1968. He obviously doesn't mean the Bastille of the day got stormed. Um, he does mean a change in thinking and how it destabilized things. So he's going to be on board with David in one sense. But another side of Wallerstein's thinking is about systems and what makes systems not work. He'll talk following Ilya Prigogine about bifurcation. And so he's got a, a discussion of the world system, which he thinks will win all the time until it can't sustain itself. And a lot of his analysis is about what that means. Mm -hmm. So I want to press a little on what that means now. You've raised it. And with one thought in particular together, there are, in Occupy itself and in your account, there's a... Um, 
focus on face-to-face worlds of, mm-hmm. of interconnection. And there's a background of mediated worlds, right? So there's face-to-face where people who are occupying, they're in the same place, but they're also you know, taking pictures and putting those in social media. They're connecting, and mm-hmm. so there's some influence back and forth from Tahrir Square to Zuccotti Park and this sort of thing, something global, but it's very face-to-face. And it's connected to kind of informal sectors in which people are doing the care work you just mm-hmm. talked about. Um, and in which there are lots of economic exchanges being forged between people that aren't mediated by money um, and are organized by another more benign sense of debt that you've also written about. Hey, if mm-hmm. I take care of this for you, will you help me with that and ways in which this grows out of cooperative relationships and organizing them not out of monetization. Mm-hmm. Take power and so forth. It's a whole world of that. So I want to ask about how that world of what we can organize face-to-face, directly, interpersonally, relates to the world of global financial capitalism mm. and large-scale systems of power and organized um, money, on the one hand, but mm-hmm. also... Um, backed by states and this very different scale of organization that goes into debt at that level but also into um, power and whether there's a potential, whether, whether your argument is that there's a potential for a world not organized at that scale and that's part of the vision mm-hmm. organized through the face-to-face or whether it's a world that would have a different alternative global, large-scale, systemic organization. Ah, yes. Um, I mean, the latter, but, but you have to start on the small scale to figure out what that would be. Okay. Um, I think that, that what was so effective of, about the image of the camps and the reason why um, there was such an enormous mobilization on the part of the powers that be to shut them down, uh, which we now know there was. I mean, it's all come out, um, is, is that... that Juxtaposition. Well, I didn't wear a white shirt tonight because then I would look like one of those yeah. that were That's right. There. Yeah. Well, the white shirts were the commanders. Yeah. <laughs> Blue shirts were just flunkies. Yeah. Um, the it, there was a form intentional idea of juxtaposition, and this came out of the global justice movement. The strategy of the global justice movement was essentially to to identify and make people think about the existence of a a global bureaucracy. Because these large structures, I mean, the way it was being represented in the media at the time is we're talking about the free market, globalization, global trade, uh, free trade, all these words are free in them. Um, And and it's a sort of spontaneous thing. It was sort of like the internet, just like the internet sort of spread spontaneously, so do all these markets. But you know, what actually was going on instead was the creation of what could be considered the world's first global administrative bureaucracy. I mean, planet-wide administrative bureaucracy. I mean, we'd had the UN before, but the UN has no teeth. And the Bretton Woods institutions at first, um, you know, didn't completely play that role, but they increasingly did. It was a very conscious move in, in the 80s with the Baker plan to use the um, third world debt crisis as a way of enforcing kind of ideological hegemony and to build up the power of these institutions so that you know, we, we saw it. Um, there's a sort of series of layers of, of bureaucracy. Um, and some were private and some were public and some were sort of halfway in between. Uh, but you have the financial institutions, and then you have the trade agreements, um, whether it's NAFTA or the EU or things like WTO and um, 
institutions like the IMF and World Bank. And then you have the NGOs, which are kind of the left hand of the state, or play the role of the left hand of the state. The enforcement mechanisms weren't direct. Um, there was no principle of sovereignty, but there was a principle of bureaucracy. Um, of course, there was no political field. But um, that global bureaucracy was, people weren't even really aware of it. Um, people in America didn't even know what the IMF was. So part of what people were doing in the global justice movement was to, first of all, point out that there is a global administrative system. It does have teeth, and you can get spanked very hard if you don't do what you're told. But um, it's completely undemocratically, uh, not democratically accountable in any way, but to point it out by juxtaposing an image of radical democracy to it. So for us, um, the organization of the direct actions w as a giant experiment in direct democracy was just as important as the negative message that we were putting across. Um, it was hard to, much harder to get into the media. We found that the negative message we got very easily into the media much quicker than we thought. I mean, the sort of Washington consensus crumbled away almost immediately within a year um, once it hit America. But um, that, that positive message we, was very difficult. Now, now um, people didn't even really know the direct democracy consensus process, all this, this spokes councils and all these things which were utterly important to us was what were going on at all. Um, now, Occupy was similar, but it also had a certain, I think, very interesting and significant historical differences. Um, the major difference is that you know, what we were organizing, the, uh, in the North at least, uh, the global justice movement, the big mobilizations and actions were essentially parties. You know, what we were doing was we were organizing a kind of a carnival or a festival. It was largely because it was a solidarity movement, I think. Um, so there were carnivals against capitalism, festivals of resistance. There was that kind of language. Um, I, I've actually argued that in a way, it takes the conventional revolutionary paradigm and turns it on its head because, you know, the sort of way we're used to thinking about a revolution, um, we kind of all know what, what happens. First, you have the battles in the street um, and you win. Then you have this spontaneous celebration. Everyone turns into a festival, carnival, everybody celebrates. Then you sort of settle into the hard work of creating democratic institutions, Soviets, sections, whatever they might be. And then finally is the reinvention of everyday life and, you know, gradually you transform, you know, very social relations on the most fundamental level. Well, in a way, what we were doing is all the other way around. You start with these subcultural groups that are all well, punks and hippies and uh, anarchist groups that are already about reinventing the relation with one another. Then you like create directly democratic structures and institutions, and you use them to put on a giant festival and party, which ends with battles in the street. Um, and then you do it again. Uh, so, so it's like a revolution in reverse or upside down. Um, Occupy was a little different because it wasn't a party. Um, Occupy was a community. Um, and, and in a way, you know, so once again, we're, we're going to the center of this tremendous abstraction. Uh, in one case, globalization, which is really a global administrative bureaucracy. We're trying to identify what it really is uh, by camping next to it um, in an obstreperous way. Um, in this case, it's Wall Street and the international financial system and its control over political structure, which is, again, a statement this is the source of the sort of anti-democratic power in the world. We juxtapose it to an image of what democracy could be like. In this case, rather than the party, it was a camp, a community. Um, and um, as a way of, of demonstrating, and it makes sense, because this is like when the debt crisis hit us. Um, it's no longer a solidarity movement. It's about people's immediate terms of existence. Um, so that, that sort of 
taking the, the principles that lie behind these kind of caring and helping forms of labor, um, transformation of what labor basically is. And I think that when I say the change of common sense, you know, the change of common sense will be complete when we see the sort of uh, what, what's normally seen as sort of household women's labor as the primary form of labor and other forms of labor as extensions of it. So rather than thinking that any form of disciplined energetic labor is good and morally good, labor is good because it helps others. Um, and it was a way in most societies imagined thing um, that you know, what we consider productive labor in terms of as productive of objects is a sort of a secondary moment in a larger process of production of people because that's what life is about. Um, we mutual creation of human beings to create the kind of people we'd like there to be in the world. Um, and, and in a way, so we were starting over again in the very conception of what, society, what value, what labor is actually about. Um, there was a sort of message about different forms of debt um, and economics even, like the center of every camp was a library. You know, if you think about a library, um, it's a perfect paradigm for non-malicious debt. You're lending something and, you know, through through giving it away, there becomes more of it rather than less. It's not a limited sum, and you give it back. Um, and um, so I think that in terms of the larger structures, the first thing was to expose their existence and, and to bring them to the center of debate. Um, and, but also to set up a process, a model of democracy, whereby people would be able to make up their own minds about how you would start creating those larger ones. So when people say, well, how do you, you, know, how do you scale up? You know, what's your model for running a country, for running a, a global system? I always, well, I mean, aside from the fact that's never how social change actually happens, that someone kind of, you know, some guy in Florence is sitting around saying, I know, we'll have capitalism, it should work like this, we'll have a stock exchange. Yeah. And, you know, you set in motion a process which, which um, sort of unleashes people's creativity in a certain direction. Um, this is what we wanted to do. So I always say, I don't want to come up with a model for how we would do this. I want to create, um, you know, what, how a non-capitalist economic system would work. Would there be markets or not? I want to set up conditions where people can decide that for themselves. Right, and that's mm -hmm. a theme of the book, so that's why it's the democracy project mm -hmm. that might have mm -hmm. as a consequence that there's a different economic organization. I imagine that it would, right? but it's like, the, yeah. It's a different economic organization, how should we mm. build it? Book. So, marking that off, and that is in a sense also, the anarchist theme that's running through it's the democracy theme. It's the radical mm -hmm. upward theme from the bottom. Um, um, mark off, though, apropos of the, the appropriation of Wallerstein, this sort of link. Mm -hmm. Wallerstein's still a Marxist, right. and <laughs> this is not going to be how he thinks about it. So at the center of Marxism is a claim that capitalism produces a great deal, mm -hmm. um, but has this anarchy in part of its system, which socialism mm -hmm. can tame and organize more effectively to distribute better and meet human needs mm -hmm. and so forth. So there's, there's a proposition about um, a, a potential set of contradictions and, if you will, mm -hmm. chaos in the, in the operation of capitalism that has to be, that can be, a, the good parts can be appropriated, mm -hmm. turned into a different socialist system. So you have some thoughts about communism and about mm -hmm. how this relates and the extent to which it appropriates a version of the work mm -hmm. um, ethic that you're, you're talking about. You want to say one more? Yeah, I, I actually was very inspired by reading some was a book about Spain. I can't remember which one, maybe the Spanish labyrinth or the Spanish cockpit. There are a whole bunch of them um, about political situation leading up to the Spanish Revolution, um, where they made the point that in the early part of the 20th century, there were effectively 
the effective division between socialist labor unions and syndicalist labor unions um, throughout Europe was that the socialist unions almost invariably asked for more money and um, higher wages, and the um, anarchist unions asked for less hours. Um, so essentially, the socialists were saying, you know, like, okay, we want um, a larger share of the pie. Ultimately, we think the workers should be running the system. But it was the same system based on what I call the productivist bargain. You know, essentially that you know, we will submit ourselves to greater work discipline so as to create a consumer utopia. Um, whereas the anarchists was wanted out of the system entirely. You know, so it's like, give us as little time as possible in here and we'll make our own life somewhere else. <laughs> so we want more hours. I always thought the irony of the 20th century, you know, there's a famous Bakunin um, uh, Bakun and Marx argument about where the revolution would happen, who was the real revolutionary classes, and Bakunin argued that it would be Spain and Russia and the sort of recently proletarianized peasants and artisans rather than the sort of advanced industrial proletariat of Germany and, and England, as Marx predicted. Um, of course, Bakunin was right, but um, you know, one of the great ironies of the 20th century is that it was essentially the anarchist constituencies who wanted less hours, um, who made most of the revolutions who end up with a socialist ruling class um, who believe in productivism and consumer utopia, which they completely fail to provide. But what do they provide? Well, less hours, right? Because, you know, you couldn't get fired from your job. People, in, for the most part in the Soviet Union, worked four to six hours a day. Um, and, and they couldn't take credit for the one great social benefit they did provide. You know, they had to call it the problem of absenteeism. Um, but... Um, Nonetheless, um, I think that that's, that is a part where we, we drift apart. I, mean, I think Wallace is really interesting, um, if we just want, because he's pulling both ways. I mean, in a one way, he does actually kind of like the anarchists, and he embraces that. And, and um, so he'll write these reports saying, well, what will, ha-, you know, he wrote a one for the, he sent to me, he said, you'll be charmed to know that I wrote this for the South Korean intelligence agency. And they, they commissioned a report on what I think the world's going to be like in 25 years. And he predicted that um, essentially, the United States would be slowly reduced to a military enforcer for East Asian capital, which would force Europe to realign with Russia as their military enforcer. But, um, and, but it was always, um, you know, ends with like, that is, if the current system is maintained and doesn't completely implode and turn into something so completely different, we can't predict anything. Right. So that's always, will. which it probably will, yeah. and that's what he's really hoping. You know? Right, and this illustrates that <laughs> yeah. in keeping with a lot of Marxism, he's going to be anything but a moralist. Hey, I have no problem taking money from the South Korean yeah. intelligence agency because it's not about just having a moral posture, it's about systemic analysis. Mm-hmm. I'm giving a good systemic analysis, I give the same one for free at um, a World Social Forum meeting, um, and uh, um, it's fine. Lots of people in this other world of direct action, though, would be much more concerned about a sort of immediate, direct, moral evaluation of action and relationships. And um, and I, I want to come back, I can't resist saying the, the uh, Russian Revolution example, well, the anarchists and in, in a variety of other settings, and not just anarchists, but those recently proletarianized peasants, the variety of mobilizations, win and lose in rapid succession and the Tahrir Square looks a little bit like this story and stuff. That is, that these sorts of movements are effective at toppling some old regimes and um, lose out in the immediately following struggle for power. And um, so what is your thought about the contemporary world revolution and that sort of challenge, the mm-hmm. one in which the small scale, the face-to-face, maybe aided by social media, actually fills the square, mm-hmm. topples the regime, 
and then loses out to others who are better organized. Well, they, it depends on what you mean by lose. When I talk to people I know in Egypt, they were very depressed a year ago, but like, I'm talking about the real revolutionary elements. Um, they're actually kind of more cheerful now because they just realize that the existing state structures are just like being delegitimized and unsustainable, and there's space now. To, people are so disillusioned, there's space for autonomous organizing. I mean, it depends on what. This argument I used to always yeah. hate, which is when things get worse, then we'll have the revolution. Oh, no. But the, the, the solution not, wants things to get worse. They're not saying it's getting worse in the, in the sense of everybody's miserable so we're happy. They're saying that like government control has vanished in certain parts of the country. You know, um, they think that's a good thing. Um, I, I think that, that what I'm saying is that I actually like the autonomous Marxist argument that capitalism never really creates anything. It's merely reactive. Um, and that the fact that capitalism has to co-opt something doesn't mean that capitalism won. In some ways it means that capitalism loses, I mean, or that the powers of, of reaction lose. Um, you know, the fact that capitalism has co-opted feminism doesn't mean that, like, feminism lost. Okay. Um, and in a similar way, you know, you could say even if the Soviet Union, well, you know, those um, elements that were the sort of typical anarchist constituencies didn't control the government, but of course anarchists don't want to control the government, right. um, but they did create a society in which they only had to work four to six hours a day. I mean, you know, there, so were, there were all these little things in there. Co-opting and shooting, really different. And um, <laughs> state power in, yeah. in the Soviet Union, and yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of organized power structures mm -hmm. still, and so a different kind of left argument would mm -hmm. make more of that, and the implications for radicalism of the fact that you have to confront organized repressive state power, as indeed yes. Occupy Wall Street had Oh, indeed, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, and, and, and you always will if you actually rankle people enough. I mean, the, the degree to which we met organized state power um, was, well, I mean, it didn't surprise us. We were expecting it. What we didn't expect was the degree to which every, just about all sectors of sort of established authority fell in line behind them. And uh, that was really a legacy, I think, of, of changes that had happened since 9-11 that didn't happen during the global justice movement. I mean, they tried to create this huge moral panic over some broken windows in Seattle, and most people were sort of bemused. Um, I, I saw polls, even at the time, so the majority of Americans were either sympathetic or um, identified with protesters. It was a narrow majority. Uh, it, when, you know, when they saw television coverage, even though the television coverage was uniformly hostile, um, they would only talk about, you know, the danger of violence and chaos. And I think that shifted very dramatically um, after 9-11 when you see a real militarization of American society. And, and um, it took this very, very strange form among liberals of this sort of worship of Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi was basically used as a justification for repressive police power in a way that I hadn't seen before um, in the sense that you know, at the moment of the depression began, and, and it was coordinated, it's kind of come out now, uh, that there was a coordination between Homeland Security, the FBI, all these sort of anti-terrorist fusion session, sections they'd set up. So they set up this huge apparatus of repression, you know, and, and basically had nothing to do with it for 10 years because there were no terrorist incidents. So they're sort of waiting for some excuse to use all this stuff. And, all, um, and, and bank representatives, they actually had... Uh, representatives of a, large, a lot of these too-big-to-fail institutions sort of sitting there coordinating 
and strategy um, with them. As I say, the Freedom of Information Act, a lot of this has come out. Um, but what we imagined was that we would get much more support from the sort of progressives, as they call them in America, from the sort of left wing of the Democratic Party, who'd been doing everything they possibly could to co-opt and sort of steer the movement in the direction of more of a left-wing Tea Party. Uh, not with much success, but that we, we thought they would have the common sense to realize that it was in their interest to have us around at all. And, and this is something that I keep saying whenever I possibly can um, to the representatives of, of, of the sort of liberal establishment in America, that the Republicans seem to understand something that the Democrats don't, which is um, if you can't sell out your radicals on policy issues if you're going to sell them out on existential issues. Um, that is to say, it is in your interest to have people, radicals, um, you know, if you're on the right, to have people even further on the right. Um, and of course you don't give them what they want. They're never going to actually re reverse Roe versus Wade because that would demobilize the anti-abortion when they want them. Um, they're not, you know, not going to give the black helicopter militia people what they want, whatever that is. Um, but, um, but they want to have them there. Yeah, well, they give them big guns, yeah. Well, that's the point. I mean, you know, if you even suggest you're going to threaten the Second Amendment gun rights in America, the m mainstream right goes insane. They go crazy. They totally mobilize. If the mainstream left went so crazy on First Amendment issues of freedom of, uh, of speech and freedom of assembly, as the mainstream right goes crazy on Second Issue, amendment issues about guns, well, Occupy would still be there. But, you know, they sell us out on the existential issues. They make it impossible for us to organize at all. And then they, like, wonder why the, like, you know, terms of debate in America shift away from, like, what are we going to do about criminal bankers like it was last year to should we, you know, slash Social Security like it is now. Um, you know, they can't sell us out on the, uh, those issues unless they've got us there to begin with. And we'd assume there was an understanding between liberals and radicals that essentially, like, we make a fire to your left which will make you seem relevant, like the reasonable compromise, get your issues on the table, and you keep us out of jail. You know, that's the way it always worked in the past. And this time it didn't. Um, this time, you know, all of a sudden, right at the point where this sort of coordinated assault began across America, using all these anti-terrorist tactics and militarized police that they'd been developing for 10 years and had nothing to do with, um, they, all of a sudden, the big issue was, you know, back at Oakland two months ago, there were some guys dressed in black that broke a couple windows, you know. I mean, the level of violence you're talking about, I mean, I, I, I like to point this out, that, you know, I, I, Occupy may well be the most nonviolent movement in American history um, of its scale. Uh, I mean, you know, the average Canadian hockey game has more than two broken windows. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's really nothing. And we're talking about 500 occupations, you know, two or three broken windows. Gandhi never pulled off anything like that. You know? um, they, they used to chide us. There was this guy, I remember, at some conference, some liberal, uh, just very well-meaning person, um, sort of saying, well, you know, we should learn from Gandhi. You know, when there was an incident of violence in his Quit India campaign, um, you know, he called off the whole campaign. And he seemed to be thinking that, that Occupy should take a lesson from this. So I looked up the event in question. And it involved, if I remember correctly, Gandhi's own people hacking 17 policemen apart with machetes and, and setting them on fire. And it's like, you know, I, yeah, I think if that happened in Cleveland, we'd probably call off the campaign, too. <laughs> um, you know, instead, you know, Gandhi would have cared if two people broke a window. <laughs> I mean, it really wasn't a big, that kind of thing would not have been a big issue for him. So, so essentially, and this is why I say it, this kind of 
bizarre misplaced use of Gandhi becomes a form of, of, of militarization in itself. That, that, you know, in order to create a movement where not a single person attacked by police so much as like threw back a canister, nobody ever like broke a window, you'd, you'd have to create a police, you'd have to create a top-down structure almost as militarized as the police that are coming at you to be like, you know, just as systematically nonviolent as they're being systematically violent. And the logic seems to be that if you don't do that, you basically deserve what you get. And it, it, yeah. So I agree, <laughs> Occupy is extraordinarily peaceful in all of this. I'm going to probe quickly the word violence and then relate to something else. The, on the word violence, I would say yes and no, because there's this mm. it's very repressive response. So, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it goes right down to university presidents who decide that the quadrangles have to be cleared by yeah. the police for the reason they're pepper straight, that UC Davis, and there's all this. So there's, there's a lot of repression. Organized violence, think of the, the repression of the labor movement in the early 20th mm. century in the U.S. or something. Like that. The, the way in which another uh, movement um, gets repressed is re much more violent, and you can get to, you can find still more violent stories around. So it's not clear to me this is massive violence. It is massive repression in a certain way, and I wonder if there's any meaningful difference between the way in which um, the capacities for free action mm -hmm. get limited. There are no free spaces. Now there are surveillance cameras and there's policing and there are tactics of uh, putting up barriers that divide a public space into smaller public spaces so mm -hmm. you can't get a big crowd in the middle of it. And there are a whole series of tactics. Many of them started after the Seattle WTO protests, in fact, as policing, you can say, how do we lose control here? Let's never do it again. And we have here kettling and all of these sorts of tactics. So I'm wondering um, whether there's something importantly distinct between, as it were, the direct violent repression that kills people and the organization of a surveillance society controlled, administered um, absence of potential for crowd action. Okay. I, I should, I should um, say, um, well, I'm not sure how much I hold by this violence repression distinction because um, it's important to use you know, to describe things as they literally happen. Uh, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that the level of violence is, is um, very different than in movements in the past, but it would have gotten there. Um, I, I mean, they're, they're better at the violence than they used to be. They used to be a lot more random. Um, I mean, what happened in Seattle was actually that at first the police balked and then they went crazy and started attacking everybody in sight, including tourists. Uh, and that's sort of what happens when you don't have disciplined police. And that what they've been doing is they've been training people to use violence in a very, very precise way. But to say that it's not violence um, for that reason, I mean, a lot of this simply wasn't covered. When you take people's heads and smash them repeatedly on concrete, that's, that's violence. When you systematically break people's fingers, that's, that's violence. I mean, um, well, I'm not arguing it's not violence, yeah. but I'm arguing yeah. that there are different tactics of control. Yes. And that it's, it's much more effective and cal calculated. violence is one of them, and mm -hmm. sometimes it turns out police have learned a counterproductive one that can easily get out of control. In this case, it was pretty much what they did. I mean, you know, in this case, it was pretty much that. Um, what they did was essentially create an environment where um, nobody but kind of what we might call hardened activists could go out on the streets. And they intentionally targeted, um, like, for example, we had a six-month reoccupation of Zuccotti Park. We all showed up there somewhat spontaneously. We weren't necessarily going to camp out there. We thought we might. And, and the cops came in, and they, like, uh, you know, they attacked people in wheelchairs. 
know, they went after this very sort of, and, and, and beat them, you know, and, and, and like I know people, they were doing things like sexual assault, they would like grab women's breasts systematically, sometimes while blowing kisses, it was very obviously a tactic. They've been doing it a couple months earlier in Egypt, um, so it seemed to be these ideas bounce around. And I, I have one friend, you know, who sort of like called him, screamed that somebody called him a pervert for doing this, and they took her behind the um, lines and broke her wrists. I mean, it was like very, very systematic, targeted, vulnerable populations to say, if you're not some tough person who would look like you're not, people aren't very sympathetic with you on TV, don't even come because you're going to be a victim. So, I mean, it was, it was very calculated and it was rather scientific. And you, know, you have to think, like, who are these people, like, sitting around saying, I know, let us do, like, a moderate-level sexual assault combined. You know, I mean, you know, like, coming up with strategies like this. But it's, it's, it's it's, 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 you know, the same thing would happen in different places at, at um, similar times, uh, or one after the other. A lot of this stuff was developed in Egypt, and then it was shot in, in New York two months later. Uh, stuff yeah. was developed longer. There are international right. consultancies. I don't think it's all yeah. developed in Egypt. I mean, I think there is well, a... Well, tried out. <laughs> yes. Of, yeah. development Absolutely. Of but I, I wanted... Yes. Um, but, you know, they were, they were clearly bouncing around, and, and they would send Timoney, like, at one point, who was the guy who had developed a lot of the stuff in Philadelphia, the sort of systematic lying, um, and tactics against global justice movement to Bahrain at the same time this was happening, like these Egyptian things were showing up in New York. But, but um, what I wanted to emphasize, though, is that what seems very important about this um, policing stuff is that it, they were using direct physical assault on peaceful protesters in a way they hadn't before, which was they were using it on middle-class white people. Um, if you look at American history, there's been no end of examples of just outright, you know, kill people, beat people, you know, extreme physical violence directed at people involved in social movements. But generally, those have either been working class movements or people of color. Um, they generally, usually, when there's any level of repression, even I'm, I'm you know, older against, than you. Yeah. I still have a scar on my head. It, it, that well, I got 60s is where it started to change, <laughs> but there was a moral crisis about it at the time. That's the thing. When there is, um, you know, Kent State, it becomes yeah. a big issue, which right. it wouldn't necessarily if it was black people. If it was um, now, and now, it doesn't yeah. in 2011, which is that's my thing. That's where I'm going to. That's so, where I'm going to. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, and so I think <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Is this a revolutionary threat to state power mm -hmm. or a very aggravating movement that, among other things, tactically, um, instead of bringing the liberals on side, you can say, well, that's the great failure of the liberals. They aren't on side. That the, they don't know to treat um, Occupy the way that the Republicans treat Tea Party or something like that. Mm -hmm. I actually sort of buy that argument. But I think there's also this uncomfortable way in which Occupy um, tactically creates problems, say, for progressive urban mayors, um, so-called progressive urban mayors. You want to say they're not so progressive after all. But, yeah, but <laughs> well, as we discovered in Oakland. Or for trade unions, like mm -hmm. uh, the, the Port of Seattle sort of question, what does it mean when the Occupy tactic is to close down the port, which is the livelihood of the workers? So is there a tactical question around what it would take to have larger-scale alliances Mm. And how well did that go? Well, actually, the unions are a really interesting example. Um, we had a lot of support from the unions, uh, rhetorically. Um, what we find with unions is this is exactly the same as happened in the global justice movement. They are totally on side when you come up to them and say, we want to do a massive direct action. They're like, great, we need that. Um, and then over time, they will gradually start saying, well, except maybe we should do the really big action later. Maybe we should tone it down a little. And by the time it's, the whole thing is over, you're just marching around. <laughs> Um, and this happens over and over again. Um, and a part of the reason is the extraordinary vulnerability. I mean, you, I don't want to be 
too harsh on labor unions. Um, labor leaders get put in jail, you know, for, for uh, quite easily in America. They're under enormous pressure from the state. Um, and they're in this very anomalous position where they, have a kind, they kind of have a place at the table, but not really. It's a, you know, um, and so, so we actually, before May Day, we, did, we, we figured, okay, forget, uh, forget the liberal groups. We don't need them anyway. We will shift our alliances to community groups, immigrant rights groups, and unions. Uh, unions had come through with us. Um, and and this, that's exactly what happened. They were totally down doing mass direct action, and they kind of balked and gradually changed. Um, and then they didn't even mobilize their people when we had a march. Um, they backed off the thing. However, we did get them to endorse social revolution. There's actually a statement um, which came out, um, which... Um, I wrote part of it, actually, um, where we essentially called for a revival of the spirit of radical social transformation, creation of autonomous municipalities, and erasure of borders. I mean, it's very radical stuff. And we got every single union in New York to sign. So in terms of their actual willing to endorse radical visions, they're there. It's in terms of the, so turning I'm, I'm things out. It's a great example that Andre Gortz once called non-reformist reforms. That you mm-hmm. got that partly because you presented a variety of things that looked like reforms mm-hmm. that would have had revolutionary implications yes. had they all been enacted. Exactly. And that, that was part of the secret for being able to build mm-hmm. some of that coalition. But in the and I you know, resist a variety of temptations. There's a lot that's interesting. I went to go uh, rules for radicals and the Alinsky mm-hmm. moment in this. I'm gonna stop. I think it's time to open up to questions uh, from the audience and um, make you not an audience but speakers. So man in the mm-hmm. sort of plum colored shirt there. Yes. You. <laughs> Well, let me say there's a microphone coming to you unless you're really good at shouting and crowd mobilization music. Yeah. Um, thanks, David, for the talk. Uh, I just want to say really quick that I think this sort of represents that kind of paradigmic shift because in 2011 you had the old LSE director who was sort of, you know, one of the architects of finance capital driven out at the height of this, like, Libyan spring, Indeed. and in comes someone who has a scar from 69 fighting with the cops. So I think this... how I'm dressed. I just, just want to point out. <laughs> but this is, this is sort of that paradigmic shift. But at the time, the Students' Union and the UCU was asking for a democratization of the university where students and lecturers would actually choose, and janitors would choose democratically for the leadership of LSE. So LSE essentially placated the left, which is great. I mean, this is progression. But at the same time, I'll bring it back home. I mean, I think, what do you think in terms of occupancy? This is part of the sort of post-crisis consensus where, you know, that finance capital no longer becomes acceptable. Do you think that institutions placate the left oftentimes with sort of liberal leadership or progressive leadership of unions and these kinds of institutions? Or have you seen a genuine democratization participation from Uh below? Thank you. Uh, you're talking about unions. Well, you I know, he glances at me before he answers it. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you democratizing the structure of the university? Yeah. Um, in my experience, um, that's what we came out of May Day with. We decided, like, okay, union leadership are only good for so much. We can't really trust them to come through on anything involving direct action. But there were. Lo- really exciting horizontal movements inside unions that are starting up. A lot of people who had spent time in camps who really liked what they saw are starting to do the same within the structures of labor organizations. And that's where we're really optimistic about. I haven't, I haven't been in New York as much as I want. I'm sort of running back and forth constantly between. Um, so I don't know what's been going on with that in the last few months. But um, 
over the summer when I left, that was one of the things that was getting everybody very excited. That, that kind of, we call it contaminationism in America. You know, that, that law, in a way, democracy is, is infectious. Once you have a certain experience of it, you're going to start doing some, you know, it's kind of hard to go back to the old ways of doing things and not feel stupid about it. Um, and um, everybody's going to end up doing a, a rather, their own rather different version of it. But nonetheless, that sort of horizontal bug has been unleashed. And I think it's, um, I mean, the, the, the largest effect I, uh, of democracy when people say, well, yeah, what did you actually accomplish? Well, I mean, aside from the fact that, like, we're talking a year and a half here, like, you know, I don't think very many social movements did nearly as much as we did in a year and a half in history. Um, the... You know, aside from cha actually getting Americans to talk about class power, which no one's been able to do since the 1930s, um, the major thing is we, we, we started the beginnings of creating a culture of direct democracy and you know, getting people to have some idea what that would even be like. I mean, it's rough at first. I mean, a lot of knowledge has been lost even since 2000. Um, but, um, you know, creating a kind of infrastructure of people who know how to do that and, and who start experimenting with it in all sorts of different areas of, of life where they had never been organized democratically before, I think is probably the most promising thing that, that, that's happening. And now it's gone back under the radar. People aren't talking about it, but it's happening. And a lot of us are saying, well, look, you know, once like the, the big, next big crash comes, most of the people I've talked to um, seem both at the Federal Reserve and at the IMF, seem to feel in two years um, there should be another one. Um, uh, probably worse than 2008, unless they do something very fast, which they don't seem to be doing. Um, that, um, you know, it's going to be the far right and, and, and us who are going to be like there with models on the streets for how you could do things alternately when things start falling apart. So it's really important to maintain that um, and, and put as much work as possible in creating that infrastructure because... Um, it's, you know, we were taken by surprise by Hurricane Sandy. You know, we didn't expect it to be a natural disaster first. Uh, we thought it was going to be an so economic and social disaster. But in a way, like you know, having that infrastructure was really useful. We were the first people out in the streets, sir. Um, and we need to do that on every level. And every time that happens, those skills spread. Well, I'll stick in a very mm -hmm. short answer. I'm not going to comment every time anyone asks David something in this. It's really about him. But on our comment on the institutions, there are two ways. First, I actually agree with the point that he's made. It's just maybe the most important and often neglected thing for movements is the work that goes on between the waves of high activism. Mm -hmm. um, if you try to build the whole movement during the waves of high activism, this doesn't happen. Secondly, about Occupy, I think, I think he may probably agree that he started out answering the what have we accomplished question, but the basic question is what we were. It's, 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 the, it's not a, it's what was it, um, mm -hmm. in a sense, almost more basically than what we accomplished, because it wasn't just a tactical instrumental effort to accomplish something. Mm -hmm. And so the, the manifestation of being something else was an important part of, of what was going on. About institutions, though, I say quickly, I think that one of the things that went on is that and has gone on often, and in the financial crisis at other times, is that institutions like universities have not stepped up to the challenges exceptionally well. They've had brilliant intellectuals who have criticized and done various things. One of the big questions, which is slightly different from democratizing the institutions, are these institutions protectors of space hmm. for mobilization, argument, debate? And so forth. it's a tremendously important thing for institutions like universities, whatever else they do, elitist, all the other kind of things you can say they are, is they often provide space for arguments, debates, and so forth. And one of the really sad things in the Occupy movement to me was how many university leaders 
who would themselves would say, well, I'm a liberal or something. And I know some of these people. They are. Drew Faust really is a liberal. Nonetheless, President of Harvard, mm-hmm. nonetheless, right, felt that they had to close off the freedom of public space in their universities. And I think that that's a huge loss when that happens, either literally with the space or metaphorically with the intellectual debates if they get closed down too much. We should be watching that. And I want to point out, because it's not the same as the question democratization, but it's important. And it's not the same. And one of the issues with democratization is who's the we when we talk about democratizing the university, talk about reducing hierarchy, or students should have more power, faculty less, or certainly the, the administration should have less power in favor of both faculty and students or something. But who's the we? Is it the insiders of the university who then run it, it's employees and members, it's a membership organization. Is it the society mm-hmm. which ought to get something out different out of having universities other than an interest group for their members? And it's an issue that comes up for unions. Are they about protecting their members' interests or changing society? And it's an issue globally about countries. Like part of the challenge to the Washington Consensus that David talked about in the Global Justice Movement wasn't from the Global Justice Movement. It was from a bunch of developing countries that said things like, we're not buying into the Washington Consensus. That will only keep us underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. We are going to do other things. We're going to have protectionist tariffs. We're going to violate intellectual property rights and market ARVs worldwide, as Brazil did, at low cost, undercutting big pharma. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, these sorts of things are also there. So you have to keep asking, who's the we in any of these things? Mm. And, and, and it's, a, it's a difficult question for democracy today, and it's one we have to keep working on between movements. So, questions? Um, yeah, we go to the other side quickly. Uh, this about the third row there somewhere. <laughs> okay with you if I just keep calling yeah, people. You can do stacks of people don't have to like pull it back their arms. I'd like to um, (laughs) get back to the original discussion about historical analogies, 48, 68, and uh, 2011. I mean, I just sort of wrote down, you know, after 1848, you have Louis Napoleon and Bismarck. After 1968, you have, well, in America at least, well, in a way, George Wallace, Richard Nixon, and then if you want to talk about a long 68, which lots of social movement people say, uh, Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher. But after 2011, you have the victory, even if you don't like these people from the point of being an anarchist, you know, the victory of Obama is not the victory of Richard Nixon. Uh, and, but Obama's um, way to the right of Richard Nixon. Well, yeah. <laughs> in, in the context of, yes, Keynesian economics, I suppose you're right. But maybe on other things, maybe not. Um, uh, the point I'm trying to make is maybe the analogy here is interesting that lo- the, the, the field is much more open. Maybe it's like the 1930s in a way. Mm. Mid to, you know, early to mid-1930s, we use the American analogy, without having a, um, you know, a lo- you know a, 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 an activist communist party, so you have people going and possibly mobilizing in a different way. So it's quite an interesting analogy. The other point I just wanted to make, the historic uh, factual point, uh, the transport workers in, U- U- uh, in New York have always been pretty left-wing. You can go yeah. back to Michael Quill and, and, and the strikes back in the 1960s, and those construction workers you were talking about, of course, the man who was in charge of the construction was the, uh, the head of, of labor for Richard Nixon. And he, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a, a kind of 
what happened was right after Kent State, and they, and they was targeted, basically, against students at Pace College, if I remember correctly. So he did Richard Nixon a favor at that point, in mid, mid-May 1970. No, this is all true. Um, but it is nonetheless the case that um, the construction workers, even, even the construction workers were actually quite sympathetic this time around. And... Um, there, there was a sea change. I mean, that was the most extreme on either side in both, in, in both occasions. Um, I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question also about the immediate political reaction. I mean, 68 and in, in Paris being followed by the victory of the right and so forth. But, um, you know, if you look at in the broader scope, the, the, what the right was doing in 68 is so far to the left of, you know, what, what the left is doing now that... Um, you know, that's how you measure it, uh, is, is the bounds of what's considered possible. I mean, it's, it's clear that, you know, Obama's way to the right of, of, of Clinton and Clinton's way to the right of Nixon on economic issues. Maybe not on social issues. But. All right, so mm-hmm. much for stacking. But okay. <laughs> in the center up above there. All right, shout, no, because there's that barrier between So I wanted to ask David in particular about uh, if you have experienced any um, any surprises in in the kind of internationalist imaginary that you saw in the Occupy movement, let's say, compared to the global justice movement, or just looking at the future, what kind of internationalism um, or already? Uh, oh, I, by stack I meant like you know one two three four five, and then we call them in order. To, I, I, we don't have to like oh, I a, have a, yeah, three ones. Go ahead. yeah. Well, either way. Um, well, you know, one thing people don't realize is just how much uh, these movements were drew on one another. Um, it's not uh, it's not as if we heard that there were people in Egypt or people in Spain doing something. We said, oh, let's do that, and um, there were actually people flowing around. Um, I. Uh, there were people from Spain, Greece, uh, Tunisia, uh, Egypt, who were there in New York when we were planning all of this. Um, there was a lot of exchange of ideas. Um, if you, the history of the "We Are the 99% slogan, actually, I always thought was kind of significant in that regard. Um, that I, I threw out the idea, why don't we do something of 99%? I'm not sure what. And and then it was um, uh, I a. Two Spanish um, indignados and a Greek anarchist uh, who actually did the graphics of the first hand, like, like leaflet we put out, which said "We the 99 percent," and it was like a Korean um, food not bombs person who like added the R. So it was like the slogan itself is an international product, you know. Um, and um, I'd give Adbusters some credit. They had nothing to do with the 99 percent. No. In your first essay on this. Uh, they had nothing to do with the 99 percent. They were they came up with Occupy Wall Street you know, as as a slogan, um, and they they came up with a date, which was really annoying. But I, I don't want to go into that. Um, but um, but but so so these things, you know, even the slogan was actually an international product, um, and and things were bouncing back and forth in in a really profound way. I mean, I, as, as I was saying, the the. The global justice movement was basically a solidarity movement. When it came to America, it was quite late, and even when it came to UK and Europe a little earlier. But you know, it didn't start there. Um, it started really with the Zapatistas and the Zapatista Encuentros. And but then it quick. But 
it always became this sort of um, thing which wasn't essentially about people's own issues. It was something people were doing in solidarity with others. Whereas what I think is really nice about the Occupy issue, it was people, all of whom were acting in a sense of global uh, solidarity about the same thing. In a certain degree, because the global justice movement was successful. Because, uh, it, I mean, not completely successful, but um, the... the the basic problem of the Washington consensus, structural adjustment policies, the use of debt to sort of pressure certain types of, of, of rather de- devastating um, reforms um, was largely reversed. I mean, you don't see austerity in East Asia and Latin America. Um, it's suddenly, so it's almost as if the moment that, that the IMF is essentially kicked out of most parts of the world, suddenly it shows up again in, in Europe doing the same thing. Um, so, which is why I, I'd like to think of what's really going on in 2011 when thought of in retrospect as the sort of first salvo of struggles over the dissolution of the American empire. Um, so it kind of makes sense that it begins in the Middle East and then eventually, you know, it's, it's seen to like sort of like flash around the world when it hits the U.S. itself, because everybody's saying, oh, my God, if they're doing this in Wall Street, um, you know, about the same issues affecting them individual, uh, locally in the same way, something is really happening. So that was very different. Yeah. Good. Woman in glasses there. Yes, you. You, yes. Identify yourself to the person with the microphone and take the microphone. Hi. Um, I have a question from a little bit of a different direction. So... Um, you make the suggestion of the Jubilee year, and uh, which has its roots, as probably you know, uh, in mm-hmm. the Aramaic notion of sadaka. And uh, this originally, of course, meant justice, sort of like the Hebrew term sadaka or sadak in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Constantine converts to Christianity, it slowly is reconceptualized to mean charity, and you see that mostly in Augustine. So my question actually is more about how the notion of Jubilee connects to or disappears when justice is transformed into charity. Ah, okay. Um, and then the logic of how charity, in essence, sort of feeds into this logic of one must pay one's debt. So the question really is about the relationship between charity mm-hmm. and the morality of one must pay one's debt. Yeah, I find it very interesting that, that well, I'm, I'm a great fan of Marcel Most, but I think he's been largely misread uh, in, in very key ways. And one of the points that he makes very interestingly um, is that because everybody talks about his theory of the gift as being about gifts and, and gifts as, um, as being selfless, so, you know, pure, uh, uh, pure selfless charity. And um, most is actually saying in most societies that have existed, pure selfless charity is inconceivable, just as pure self-interest is inconceivable. You know, like, because, you know, human relations are very complicated. You know, you do something, it's going to have all sorts of ramifications on yourself and other people. Everyone's aware of this. It's going to benefit you in some ways. It's going to hurt you in some ways and benefit others in some ways. You know, half of the things you're doing, you're doing partly to benefit someone, partly because you hate someone else. Um, so so um, the idea that you can have an act that's purely self-interested or of pure charity is really only possible when you have specific institutional structures uh, in personal markets um, using actual physical cash rather than credit, um, which make it possible for you know, people who will never meet each other again to regularly engage with each other on similar terms of, acquisit- of uh, material acquisitiveness. And it, sure enough, when you have the invention of coinage, um, it's uncanny. You know, in exactly the same times and places, you almost immediately see the invention of a, a rise of world religions, all of which have ideologies of charity. Um, so, so that idea of the purely self-interested act and the purely 
um, selfless act seem to crop up, be made conceptually possible by each other, and to be the products of certain institutional structures. Um, one could say that, you know, in a way, um, one of the primary differences between left and right thought has been that on the right, um, the idea is to like keep that separation um, and 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 sort of embrace both. We embrace both the market and charity. You know, uh, we want to keep, uh, and and the left has been trying to like annihilate the difference between them and move back to some uh, again. Um, in terms of jubilee, I, I I like to think of it as a way of. Uh, uh, you know, the modern contemporary conception of a jubilee would largely be conceptual in nature. It goes back to um, the idea of common sense, revolutions of common sense again, that um, a, a jubilee is a cleaning of the slate. Um, and it comes back, goes back to a practice uh, even earlier than the biblical jubilee of where um, Mesopotamian kings would often start their reign by just canceling everything. And it's a sort of cosmic world renewal and all debts, usually commercial debts were, were, were kept, but you know, um, ordinary consumer debts were erased. Um, and, um, but that idea of erasure, of you know, sort of clean slate, of like starting over again, um, is what I find kind of inspiring of it. Uh, we're going to have some large-scale debt cancellation. Why not do it in the grand fashion rather than sort of sneak it in while denying that we're doing it so as to preserve the sort of morality of debt which they so desperately cling to? Why not throw it out as a way of, of a sort of concept, clearing of conceptual baggage so we can realize that money isn't what we thought it is. It's really just a social relation that we could create and we could very well create differently. Um, and that seems to me very much an um, idea of wiping out those, those distinctions we have between the sort of morality of charity and morality of debt, which are parasitical on each other. Right. The man mm-hmm. behind the post Twitter saying, yeah, standing in the cloud shirt. Yeah, I'm standing here because if, if I sit in my seat, you wouldn't be able to see me. Oh, so yes, that's sorry why I'm here. <laughs> yes, hello. So, uh, near the beginning, uh, David, you, you described Occupy as a set of community encampments which were discovering, trying out forms of direct democracy and ways of organizing work collectively. Mm-hmm. I had the uh, great opportunity to see Zuccotti Park at its height. And I was impressed by the organization of the food and the library and I think health services. And there were probably many other kinds of very well-organized work that were invisible Mm -hmm. because the whole thing seemed to run so smoothly. So I want to ask about the the longer-term implications, the larger implications. In particular, after these encampments were repressed so violently, then some of them, or at least some of the activists, moved into other arenas, such as anti-debt campaigns, protecting homes from being repossessed by banks, Occupy Sandy, as you mentioned, and perhaps many others that are even less well-known, to, mm-hmm. e- even to us. So I, I want to ask, in that process, I mean, how were forms of collective work organization and direct democracy carried over mm-hmm. into those other arenas, and how did those help to draw more people into such practices? 
Uh, well, that's a big question, but but um, the brief version is that um, yeah, there's enormous numbers of projects that people just don't know are going on. Um, Occupy Farms. I always like to talk about that one. We have, um, I think, nine different occupied farms in New York alone um, that were going to be foreclosed on, and that we're sort of doing support for. It. You know, they provide food for. Um, various projects we're doing and we provide people to you know sort of protect them from 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 their creditors um, and um, there's one but we found that there was a lot of real traumatic breaks happened with the breakup of the camps in uh, there's a lot of emergency stuff just finding a place to put people because a lot of people were actually homeless and didn't have any place to go and a lot of energies had to be redirected. But um, the org mode of organization we were using was one that worked pretty well when you have a face-to-face -face community with immediate needs that obviously need to be worked on, um, the General Assembly model. The General Assembly model didn't work very well when we didn't have that space. Um, it was what, in a way, it was surprising it worked at all because we'd always assumed that we had to use a uh, spokes council model for any group of over a few hundred people, or right? even a few hundred people, um, certainly of thousands of people, uh, where you know you have everybody organized into collectives and affinity groups, and one person can speak at any given time, um, and they would confer back instead of a sort of absolute open assembly model, which uh, which is hard to square with directly democratic consensus process because there's just so many people, it becomes so unwieldy, um, and you know we were kind of amazed to discover it did work um, in in running the camps. But when the camps were gone, we kind of had to scramble for a new form of organization. And something more like the, the Spokes Council model is starting to emerge. But it took, there was a very, very painful four or five months um, where people were both working through the traumas of being evicted, many of them were homeless, um, all the tensions that we weren't thinking about for, um, or put on hold for a while sort of came out. And we had a major organizational restructuring to do at the same time. So that was, that was hard. Um, we were coming out of that, but there's, uh, and, and moving towards new forms. Um, but what was the other part of the question? Um, in terms of projects, I think that at this point, we're really thinking about you know, what it would mean to reconstitute a space. Because the big problem we had, we have now, we got the sort of process down, and people are getting better and better at it, much better than they were at first, where everybody was kind of reinventing the wheel. But we found that... You know, the one thing that the government will not let us have is any permanent space where everybody knows we're there and can come at any time. And that's what we really need because movements, you know, there's always people flowing out. You know, people burn out, they get tired. But, you know, the way movements stay alive is you have more people coming in than are flowing out. Um, and we have slightly less people coming in than are flowing, uh, flowing out at the moment because nobody knows where to go. Um, and... You know, when there was a camp, everybody knew exactly where to show up, and you always find someone who'll tell you what's going on. Every time we attempted to create even a daytime, let alone, you know, we don't even have to uh, have a camp, um, permanent location, they would just change the law and figure out some way to, like, you know, drive us all out again. Um, and that seems to be the biggest roadblock we have at the moment, is how to get a space. And, and that's what, like, a lot of, because even I don't know all the projects that are going on. Um, there's lots, and, and different cities all have different focuses and different ones and have turned in different directions. But um, that lack of any sort of focal center uh, physically is, 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 is like the big challenge that we're facing right now. Gentleman in the back there, yeah. 
Thank you. Uh, very crudely, very, very crudely, I'll just have a crude generalization and I'll throw a crude provocation at you. So it seems to me that uh, in the tradition of the left, there are two ways in which people have thought um, that um, they should uh, improve the lot of people. Either you make them happy by giving them what they want, or you make them happy by making them better people and in the process sort of changing uh, what they want. Right, in a sense. So it seems to me that in your democracy project, you're trying to sort of reconcile these two because you're saying, look, the socialists bad. They want to control government and, you know, buy into the productivists' dream and just, you know, satisfy consumerism, consumerism-driven needs and so on and so forth. Well, the anarchists are better. They just want to empower people to decide for themselves and so on and so forth, and that's what we should do. But, I mean, what if people actually don't really want to run their own affairs. What they want is to be able to buy more, you know, electronic gadgets every year and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, so I suppose what I'm trying to say is, you know, what is your argument for thinking that uh, if people were able to run their own affairs, they would want to undergo such a transformative process as to buy out of uh, productivism and so on and so forth. That, that, that's my question. Okay, that's an easy one. Um, well, then I'll do that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not going to stop them. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, the entire premise is based on a series of, of, of guesses which could turn out to be wrong. And then, then, you know, you give people freedom, they'll do what they want. I think that I, I have a suspicion from my own knowledge of history of what they're going to do. Maybe they won't, and then they'll do that. I mean, they'll, I want them to be free to make that decision. Um, as a, for example, I'll to give an example, I, whenever I argue with sort of anarcho-capitalists or like you know, radical libertarians and people like that, you know, who argue that, um, well, you know, markets will always exist um, in a free society because, you know, who am I to like, you know, how are you going to stop me from hiring someone to pick my tomatoes, you know, um, in a free society? You know, and I always point out, well, you never see anybody say, you know, how are you going to stop me from hiring myself out to pick somebody else's tomatoes? You know, the question is how you're going to get those people if, like, um, in, unless you have the artificial means to keep people desperate enough, they're going to do that. Uh, but, but um, you know, the answer I always give is, like, you know, I suspect that if you don't have coercive government enforcement of certain types of contract, you're not going to have markets of the kind that people imagine will exist in a free society. Maybe I'm wrong in that case. Okay, I'm wrong. But um, I'm willing to take that gamble. Upstairs, man on the, my far left, your right. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a question. Um, I took uh, sort of the basic question about uh, sort of disruptive movements and social change to be in the middle context. Um, it sort of seems like there is not such an institution where you have progressive and liberals who maybe are part of the institutional structure that maybe people on the left of the world periphery are sort of mobilizing against the want to see change. I see. Yeah. So what you're saying is like, should we have the alliance of you know radical left and moderate left, radical right, and moderate right, or would it be better that the radicals on both sides get together against them? <laughs> yeah. 
People have talked about that possibility for a very long time, and there have always been attempts, but generally speaking, it hasn't worked. Um, I mean, you hear every generation people say, well, differences of left and right are no longer so meaningful, but it seems that they're pretty doggedly meaningful on certain basic points. Um, <laughs> they keep coming back, and, and, and there are very basic issues of racism and sexism and things like that, which you can't kind of get away from. It's kind of hard to work with people who, you know, sort of violate what you consider to be very basic moral principles. Um, and, um, but, you know, there are limited areas of cooperation. And in a situation where dominant institutions are really falling apart in a radical way, there probably would be forms of cooperation just out of pragmatism between people who are effectively, you know, for, all for decentralization against people who aren't. But I think they would be alliances of convenience that would not last very long, as has been the experience of people who've tried this in the past. Okay, David, I just want to uh, ask you a quick question from my position here, and then I want to try and sum up for this evening. Um, you might know there's a famous book by Daniel Bell about Marxism in the United States, and mm -hmm. he has an analysis over a period of more than a century of the American left in which mm -hmm. he draws on the distinction between sects and churches, not in the pejorative way that comes out in journalism, but rather to make the point that, like sects, mm -hmm. much of the American left thought of itself as in but not of the world. And I read your book as making a case for that to a certain extent. Mm. You make a virtue of the claim that the Occupy movement made no demands and kept itself as a kind of microcosm model community. But we also know from the history of the American left and the left more broadly in the developed world that such attempts, whether lasting for some decades like the kibbutz in Israel or lasting only very briefly like the communes that were set up in the wake of the Pullman strike, have ultimately all failed. So I'd, I'd like you just briefly, and I, it's, a, it's a bit of an mm -hmm. uh, imposition on you at this point, to make some comments about the weakness of the model which Occupy pursued. We, what weaknesses do you see as, as the most important ones, not the strengths that you emphasise right. in the book? Well, I think that, that I would say this. I mean, there's a question of temporal frame. Um, now, if you are... You're always taking a gamble uh, that the system is moving into a crisis mode and that it's not ultimately resilient. Um, you know, you can, and it's like those people who say, well, any sort of oppositional gesture you have direct against capitalism will simply be reabsorbed. Um, this is true to a point, um, but, and, and will be true forever if capitalism lasts forever, but um, it seems unlikely it will last forever because no system ever does. Um, I mean, unless you define it to the point where it's absolutely meaningless. Um, you know, uh, so I always say the Roman Empire, you could have said the same thing. Every new wave of barbarians is incorporated. We turn them into Roman generals. And, you know, that formula works for a few hundred years, and then it stops. And you never know. You can't predict it. So in a way, when you're doing this, you're taking a gamble on the fact that the system is not ultimately as resilient as it looks. Um, you know, past people have, have lost that gamble, but, um, you know, if the system is that re resilient, there's not much point in doing anything. Um, it's not, I do not think that those, um, mo you know, those experiments were useless or didn't accomplish anything because they have profound effects on the culture around them in all sorts of different ways. Um, they become experimental zones for certain elements that do become adopted into the larger society. Um, so I think that there is, uh, this is what I would always say, there is uh, an important role for people who are taking that 
you know, absolute ethical position of we need to have a zone where we can at least experiment with thinking about what the institutions of a free society would be like. Um, I think that it's not politically suicidal. Um, I think that, you know, insofar as you imagine that this is contaminationism will sweep the world and, and that you're always at this point of revolution and you have to think that, you know, that's, that's a little naive and, and, and you could say it is a basic structural weakness. You have to convince yourself that you're at the brink of the end every time, and usually you're not. Um, uh, you know, the, the balance to that is that um, you can you know, drive the center in a different direction simply by doing that. Um, I think that in our case, we perhaps miscalculated, again, um, the degree to which that was possible in the U.S. right now. Um, I could give a long analysis of why I think that's the case. Uh, I don't think it's just changes about militarism and 9-11. I think it has to do with the change of the class basis of the Democratic Party. But I think there was a you know, profound miscalculation of the degree to which the Argentina model could have, could have been done that quickly. Uh, by the Argentina model, I mean the sort of utter delegitimation model. Simply by saying, que se vayan todos, you know, get rid of the entire system, we reject its terms, we're going to start um, solving our own problems and, and self-organizing, you sort of throw the ruling class into a crisis of legitimacy where they have to do something radical to re-legitimate themselves, which is essentially how the third world debt crisis ended more than anything else when the Argentine, you know, Kirchner sort of, who was the most mild social democrat possible you know, um, in his origins, you know, had to do something big because they'd gotten to the point where, where you know, politicians couldn't go to restaurants anymore. People would throw food at them. They'd have to wear disguises. You know, when you get to that point, they have to do something radical. You know, we, insofar as we imagined we were there in, in America, we were a little off, uh, maybe by 10 years, perhaps. <laughs> um, so I, I, you could say that I was a miscalculation. We thought that the level of delegitimation was much deeper than it was. Well, thank you. On that uh, sort of qualifiedly optimistic note, I, I think it's, um, it's time for me to make a few concluding comments. I, I, I basically just want to thank both our speakers for a very engaging dialogue dealing with a series of really fundamental questions for our time. I mean, you will have heard that we've heard questions about revolution, about repression. We've also heard about direct democracy and the potential of radical fringe effects. But I think above all else, we've seen some engagement with the plasticity and potential of the current moment that we live in, people who are thinking seriously about that. And I hope that gives everyone some food for thought. Can you join me in thanking both our speakers?